Well, good evening. Uh, my name is John Epps. If I haven't met you yet or if we've just seen each other across the way, hi. Get to see all of you now at once. Um, I am uh, the proud husband of that lady right there and the proud dad of a couple of uh, strapping boys, Noah and Caleb, one that we're going to celebrate uh, next month in May. Um, I've been in the lettered streets for quite some time and in Bellingham uh, for a, a good deal uh, longer than that. I've, uh, at times, I've, uh, I've been a pastor myself. I'm not at, I'm not at the moment, but uh, I've been involved in ministry in a number of different contexts in Seattle and then also up here, primarily with young adults. It was a time that I uh, really, really valued and enjoyed. It was a time for me that was challenging, as you could imagine, what uh, ministry with uh, young adults is and all the challenges of college, all the question, all the doubting. It was also a time where I feel like I, um, and I still to this day, I have, it gave me tremendous amount of hope because it was a moment where I got to see resurrection power in ways that um, I would, I would, at times be astonished by. <laughs> I'd have to sit back, and uh, Evan, who used to uh, lead worship here, he worked with me at the end, and sometimes we just had to pause for a moment, especially in the midst of all the, the challenges and the frustrations that we were uh, facing, to just kind of go, we get to see the kingdom articulated on a daily basis in ways that are amazing. I mean, it was one of those moments where it was uh, both humbling, and then at the same time, I realized God, God is showing up in ways that we talked about intellectually at Regent, and I w went to Regent in, uh, for uh, my Masters of Divinity, but we intellectualized, we thought about it, we longed for it, and then, but I got to see it. One of the things as a college pastor that I often wanted to do is I was looking for ways, especially for those that maybe didn't grow up in the church or understand the church calendars, how do we sum up what we're about? And I think what I want to do is, uh, today uh, is look at a passage. It's a classic passage. It might be the go-to passage post-Easter, but I think it's one of these passages, and, and there's, there's some that really stand out for me that are just an, an amazing summation in fact, sometimes the most powerful passages are not necessarily the list of what, here's the truths we need to believe, and here's kind of just breaking it down in argument, but it's the story that just sums up something that is much deeper and much richer. And as we enter into this post-Easter period, we've celebrated uh, the, the rise of Jesus Christ, the resurrection of Christ, that he has defeated the cross. We're in the now what do we do phase, right? Okay, now what does this mean phase? And I think this story and what it wants to invite us into uh, will both uh, help us to, to frame how we look at what's ahead of us as we frame what the church is about, as what God wants to be about, that it will help us to see how we might actually live out the power of the resurrection in our lives. So I want to I jump in, and, and what we're going to do is we're going to kind of look at this kind of, we're going uh, to start wide, kind of a wide uh, angle, and then we're going to move in a little bit, a little bit, a little bit to kind of the core thing, and I think then the core invitation. But it's a longer passage. It's the, this narrative of, uh, of the disciples encountering Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and um, I think it's really important to read all of it. And so as I do so, what I actually would invite you to do, you could follow along if that's really helpful. You could read in your Bible if that's really helpful. But um, I, I would actually like to encourage you to, to maybe even close your eyes and imagine yourself. I think that's actually what this passage is, is uh, really calling us to do. Just close your eyes and imagine yourself 
um, uh, on this road, on this journey, as these disciples encounter Jesus. So let me just pray, and then uh, we'll jump into it. Jesus, just as you encountered these disciples, I know you want to encounter us today. And Holy Spirit, I'm so thankful for these words written uh, thousands of years ago now. Uh, These words that have spoken to so many generations. These words that, though ancient, uh, have a lot to say to us today. So I pray that these words, we just thank you for these words, but we ask that they would be living and active, that this wouldn't be an ancient story, but Holy Spirit, that you would cause it um, to come alive and speak to us today. We thank you. We invite, we thank you that you're with us. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to speak. I invite you to speak um, through me and to each and every one of us where we need to hear um, the words of Christ, the words of Jesus uh, in our lives tonight. In your name, amen. All right, so we pick up uh, this uh, story of the road to Emmaus beginning in uh, verse 13 in Luke 24. We read, now, G- now the same day, two of them, that's kind of the, the same day after uh, first hearing about these resurrection accounts, some of the disciples that had been with the 12 are heading back. So that same day, the two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with e- each other, Jesus himself came up, walked alongside them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? As they st- then they stood still with their faces downcast, and one of them, named Cleopas, asked, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem to not know the things that have happened there these days? What things, Jesus asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed, before God and all the people. The chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped. And I just think, I just got to pause. I think that that is so powerful. That sums up this moment. And maybe for us as well. But we had hoped that he was the one who was, gonna be, who was going to redeem Israel. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. And in addition, some of our women amazed us, and they went to the tomb early in the morning, but they didn't find his body. They came, and they told us that they had seen a vision of angels who had said that he was alive. And then some of our companions went to the tomb, and they found it just as the women had said, but they, him they did not see. Then Jesus said to them, How foolish are you, And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he were going further on. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, he gave thanks, he broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were open, and they recognized him, and and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up, returned to Jerusalem, where they found the eleven, 
uh, and those with them assembled together, saying, It's true! The Lord has risen, as he has appeared to Simon. And then the two recounted their experiences on the road. So as we enter into this moment, I wonder what it is that you are bringing in uh, that weighs heavy on you. What we find if, on the broadest sense for these disciples, if we kind of have the broadest view, you might even think cinematically, it is that they are, in one case, they are leaving Jerusalem discouraged, downtrodden, heartbroken, going back to what they know because the, at the very place where they had hoped that God was going to do a powerful work and bring hope and redemption and just relief from the oppression that they had been experiencing, in that place, they had experienced one of the most traumatic, gruesome defeats that they could imagine. And then at the, at the very end, we see that somehow that direction, I mean, it's just, it's amazing in this story, that this direction is changed, and they're heading back to the very place that should make them fear, tremble, and be ashamed to even think about with power and with joy and with a sense of purpose and a proclamation that God wins. I mean, that's amazing. So if we want to talk on the broadest level, that is church, by the way. We come every single week a little beat up, do we not? kind of wondering what happened. Jesus encounters us and expands our mind and begins to help us see that there is more going on than perhaps what we understand. Perhaps we need to see that there's something that we had missed in this grand story that we are a part of, and then he encounters us literally at the table, which I'm glad we're going to go to in a moment, and then sends us back into the world with hope. Is that not what the project of living out a uh, redeemed life, a resurrected life is all about. And so like, that, that's where I say, as I look for uh, ways to describe this to college students, sometimes you just need a story to just go, if you want, what's Jesus about? Tons of stuff. Fundamentally, it's this. It's reversal. It's change. This is what transformation looks like as we reorient ourselves to the world. But I think as we look into this, what we, might, we might go in a little closer and we might say, what, what do we understand about the nature of this encounter, of this story that might be really important that leads to this kind of, this, this radical, confusing uh, change, this transformation, this change of direction? And we might be able to see three, at least three things that we'll, we'll just notice and we'll be unpacking as we go along. But first of all, that Jesus engages their hearts. Right? Then we see that Jesus engages their mind. And then we see that he engages them and asks them for their trust in a very intimate way. Now, I don't know how you felt as, or what came up as you were reading this, but certainly when I read this, and even though I, I've, I love this story and I've read this time and time again, it's hard, especially now, in a moment where we get sort of instant, we want things instant, right? We don't have patience for anything. You can kind of be annoyed if like, Jesus, dude, just get to it. What's the deal? Right? We want Jesus to show up and just like kind of blast us. Right? We want instant answers. We can feel like, why are you taking so long? Why, why is it that it seems to like you're trying to, you know, pretend like you're, or you're not revealing yourself Oftentimes, we want God just to show up and reveal himself, just to, to blow us away. And yet, if we were to think about what would it look like, what would it take for us to actually have a transformative experience with the living God, one that actually makes a real difference, 
I think we know that it takes more than just a big flash, a big a moment or an experience that is just super powerful and overwhelming, or even a great thought. And man, we're, t- we're looking at the Bible, just, but just finding out some new information and l- some teaching doesn't necessarily change that it actually takes, it's a little slower. It actually needs to engage us holistically. And that's what we see in even just this so- short account, which is amazing, this, this moment where Jesus is patient and slow and engages them holistically. As we think about what the resurrection would look like or could look like in our lives, I I wonder if there's one of these engagements that pops up for you. And I encourage you to think about that, that especially just to have that in the back of your head as as we're talking. Is there there a way in which Jesus is longing to engage or his spirit might just bring to the surface for us something that we perhaps have been avoiding or perhaps know we need to lean into. At the very beginning, what we see here that I, I think, I would just say can be, ta- can be hard, is that he engages our emotions. And in ways that sometimes we really want to avoid, don't we? Right? You can even see, like, they're kind of they're pissed at Jesus, Right? As he shows up and he's just patient, he's asking, what are you guys talking about? Sometimes we just want people to get it, right? Don't make us talk about it, we just, or we just want to gripe about it. But what is going on? You can see they're just like, dude, what's your problem? Are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on? Like, it's been a mess in Jerusalem. How do you not know this? And he, you see, Jesus, like, he's just, he's not going to back off. But he says, no, why don't you just tell me about that? What things? And I think we sometimes can undermine it, perhaps because we feel like God isn't interested, or we know it's just too hard to name. Maybe we feel like we can't name. Maybe we fear being able to articulate out loud what it is that we really feel. Uh, The grief that we're experiencing, the confusion, because maybe we think that, oh, if you're a good Christian, you really love God, you can't get confused come on. I'm confused on the regular. And yet Jesus says there's something really, really important if you want to talk about transformation that I I want you to know not only am I interested, and and I think it's worth my time to come along and engage you with what you is uh, the realities of, uh, in some ways, of the hard knocks of life on the road. I want you to know that that those are important, and I want you to know that I care about those, and you can't shortchange that. So I'm curious for you what that, is that, is that difficult? And perhaps that might be a way that God, and, and Jesus in particular, wants to uh, meet you this year, and to not brush over. But moving in a little closer, I think we get to see what seems to be at the very kind of core of this encounter, at least there is kind of a, a linchpin, a bit of a linchpin moment, a- and, it's, and it's one in which we see that he's going to challenge their thinking. As we look at this story, and, and by the way, I, I bring some of this stuff up because I, I think we are supposed to challenge, and I would certainly encourage college students and those we would, uh, when we would study the Gospels together, is we're supposed to kind of get <laughs> kind of in the face of Scripture. <laughs> it's one of the great things I learned and I, and I loved about some of my professors at Regent is like, we're supposed to sometimes get mad. That's the point. <laughs> 
We're supposed, like, what? That's the, that's the very point. And so this moment that, that arrests us as we go through, that I found myself, I, and I found myself that it was important for us to linger on, because I needed to linger on it, was this moment where Jesus just kind of gets, it's this tender moment, but then he gets in their grill and he says, like, oh, you foolish men, and slow to believe. <laughs> you know, can you imagine, like, whoa, easy. Jesus, come on. I mean, sometimes we, the way we talk about Jesus is Jesus isn't the guy that kind of gets in our grill, and yet he does. And I, started, I thought, well, I'll look this up, right? That's always the first thing to do when you see something that's uncomfortable. Oh, there's got to be a good backstory that softens this, right? Yeah, there's not. <laughs> I think if we were to translate, I th- translate this you can, in a mo- you know, maybe in a more modern sex, it's like Jesus kind of going, dude, just hold on, stop a beat. You're not dumb. You know this. Come on. You're capable of getting it. You just don't want to, and you definitely don't want to do what you know you're supposed to do. I mean, that's kind of what's going on behind here. I mean, the, a fool, uh, if you were to look up the language and, and dig into it a little bit, a fool is not one that isn't capable of getting it. It's one that doesn't want to get it. It's one that's like, yeah, I could put my brain to that, but I wouldn't, I don't want to. Biblically, you know, a fool that, that you'll see kind of throughout Scripture when that term is, is used is one that's like, you know what the right thing to do is, but you just don't want to do it. Right? That's what we were talking about with a fool. And so he pushes on him. He's like, you, it's not like you can't get this. Why are you acting so confused that you don't? But then he takes the time and he begins to peel it back and explain it again and explain it again and then begin to say, there are a whole lot of things in here that you are so confused that you can't get your head around, but they've been there the whole time. And so to be fair, if we were to sit with this, kind of his challenge, to be fair, it, nobody was expecting this. It doesn't make sense. Like, and you could read through all the, the resurrection accounts. Nobody got this. Everybody was just like, nah, right? Even when people were coming back, like Jesus isn't there. They're like, yeah, nah, right? Sometimes, and I think we can do that as well. Like just because people are saying things, we're like, that just doesn't make sense. I don't get that. So nobody, and, and, and let's, be, let's be humble from our modern vantage point to recognize that uh, there wasn't an expectation that this was just automatically going to happen, right? Even his closest disciples. And just because they weren't as rational or didn't have as much scientific knowledge as us, it didn't mean that just because they understood or they, they, might, they were more superstitious or whatever, that they automatically thought this was possible— this was not even on their radar, and you can see that time and time again if you look in the accounts. People just are like, what? I don't get it. And by the way, it's terrible strategy if you're trying to change the world, right? I mean, we just have to pause and just go. That doesn't, if it doesn't make sense to them, of course it doesn't, and it doesn't make necessarily sense to us. What they want and what we want understandably, is a hero that will fight their battles, that will restore their security, that will lead to victory, that will dominate the enemies, that will restore us to glory, that will give us the identity we long for, that we matter so much. And of course that longing makes sense. And how do we not, in this moment, long for stuff to be put right? I mean, some of the experience I know for, I will say for me, the last few years has been one of just profound mourning at seeing some of the ways 
that the world is going, at seeing some of the injustices that are just being brought to light, at seeing some of the corruption that seems to happen on the daily. How could we not mourn for that? But the story of humanity is that we look for that hero and we are willing to do just about anything. To, just, to justify just about anything to have a hero that will come and fight our battles or to find some power that will help us to be able to destroy the very, the very thing or those that we assume are the ones that are threatening us. We'll justify just about any means, even if it means becoming tyrants just like the ones that we hated. We'll look for just about any hero, especially ones that will tell us that we can, things can get fixed in an instant and make it easy for us. See, there's a contradiction, and this is what I, I guess I've partly been wrestling with as I've been looking at this passage anew. That there's a contradiction that they needed to get, that we need to get, I think today, if we're to understand how resurrection power moves into our lives. And the contradiction at the core of this is the, is the nature of power and how we relate to it. So we can put up that slide. There's a, there's a writer, thinker named Andy Crouch that um, I found to be really interesting when you talk about the nature of power because power is one of those tricky things we don't like to talk about, right? It, it's the thing that we all want, and, but we never want to admit that we have and that we don't like when other people have, right? It's this weird mix. And so he talked about, how do we think about the nature of power? And so on one axis, he talked about, you know, you could think about power as authority, the ability to affect meaningful action, but then you also have to think about what's the, how does that intersect with the nature of vulnerability, which would just be exposure to real risk and pain. And so if we do that, we can start to think, okay, how does power and our relation to power, how does that work out um, in our lives, and how do, we, how do we understand some of, the, some of the dynamics of power? Well, the poor, of course, are those who are exposed to massive risk, massive harm, but also have almost no ability to do anything about it. It's a terrible place to be, right? It's a terrible place to be. Then the opposite we might see, if you were to think about somebody who has massive amounts of power and authority to actually make real meaningful change, to dictate that the world snap around them, um, but also has no sense of vulnerability at all to any kind of meaningful risk, any kind of meaningful harm, any kind of meaningful challenge, we might see that to the extreme as a tyrant. And it's the tyrants, you can think about it, it's the tyrants that it's not that they just have power or wealth or means or levers of power. It's that they need more and they need more and they need more and they need more because they're doing everything they can to fly away from vulnerability. And often, I, I, I think what's fascinating about this, this kind of model is that you can then begin to understand how injustice starts to happen because the tyrants start extracting more and more and more from the poor. Then there's an in-between category there that you might call the comfortable. The comfortable, they're not exposed to any kind of meaningful risk or harm, but they really have no power either. I, I think it's fat. Andy uses the, Andy Crouch uses the uh, example of, it, they're, they're like stuck on the uh, cruise ship, right? <laughs> right? The only decision that you, can, that you can make is, do I have shrimp or not? again, right? 
you don't get to, you're not steering the ship, you're not deciding where it goes, you're not um, even deciding what kind of activities. Your job is just to go, do I do the water slide again or do I not, right? And at some point, you know, that is great. And in some ways, that's what we feel like in some, now we feel like more and more, that's what we're trying to fly towards. There isn't any responsibility, and yet there is a suffering in it because so often there is a, pretty soon the cruise ship gets old. And what you start to find with the, the comfortable who stay there is a greater and greater sense of meaninglessness and purpose like a purpose, purposelessness. Oh, that's a tongue twister. That they have to go after more and more heightened experiences just to try to feel alive, or they have to find more and more ways to numb that void that they know is fundamentally missing in their lives. I think if we can begin to understand that, we might begin to ask or think about these kind of variations, and then what is it that Jesus does? What, what, is, it that, what is it that is uh, kind of at the core of some of these dynamics of, of a world that is fundamentally broken? I think what you could see is that, that a lot of times these are just cycles, right? We just see this around and around again, and sometimes what you do is you get the poor, they find a way to seize power, they become the tyrant and make the tyrant poor. At its very worst, the comfortable are those that are complicit, that they, you can think about them as like a, they're a local police chief that doesn't investigate or prosecute or stop the abuse of the poor because they just want to cozy up to the wealthy or the powerful, the tyrant. You see this goes back around, it just goes around and around. And that maybe perhaps what we might understand is so much that is broken in our world is uh, due to a flight from vulnerability. A flight that tries to do everything it can to stop to get away from any sense of vulnerability and to use all the, the levers of power and wealth and authority you can to get further and further from risk, discomfort, or just maybe the fear that we don't matter. And it would be clear that it's not that God called us to be weak. Sometimes that message gets twisted. We're not called to just be weak and helpless. The very image of God is that we are powerful, made in the image of God, is to exercise authority, dominion on the world, to make a very real dif- difference, to increase in knowledge, to create, to exercise power. That might actually be in addressing, and actually is, to addressing the suffering in the world. But perhaps we might see in this moment, as we think about where the resurrection wants to show up, that for all our advances— and knowledge and technology, and now interstellar, as well as global understanding of how the world works, that all of our problems, our deepest problems, we seem to be oftentimes doing the very opposite of what we need to do, aren't we? That sometimes it seems like we just cannot seem to solve what seems to should be a fundamental problem, or perhaps we're not even doing the very things that we know we should do, that we should know better about. I mean, isn't it fascinating? I mean, I, I have to watch not getting in too much of a black hole, but is it fascinating? Sometimes are so many of our modern-day heroes that we see on a regular basis in tech, in government, they continue just to make really bad decisions or somehow be totally blind or incapable of thinking about, like, consequences that might go out just, just a little bit that you're like, you don't have to be that smart to, to get that. I mean, I was thinking about even recently our, our 
most recent banking crisis, right, came from really, really smart people at Silicon Valley Bank who, when they found out, okay, what happened that almost, like, disrupted the whole banking industry that we had to, like, bail out, it was just, like, basic bad banking, right? <laughs> like, when you look at it, it was like, yeah, they just basically didn't do what everybody knows you should do. What is that? What is that, and why is that going on? Well, I think, you know, what, as we think about the cross, and then what Jesus is trying to get them to get, where he says the Messiah had to suffer, and then to suffer, and then to, um, first, and then go into his glory, is you think about what the cross was, uh, a, um, a key, perhaps some of the most brutal instrument of power that Rome had, I mean, even back then, I mean, a lot of times we don't want to think about the brutality of the cross because it was brutal, because it was gruesome. And as as I was thinking about today, I was listening to uh, uh, an interview with Fleming Rutledge, who's a theologian who's done a lot of work on on the significance and the meaning of the cross. And one of the, and just, she was describing and bringing up about how it was, it wasn't just a way to kill people. um, It was a way to, to fundamentally dehumanize to brutalize, to take somebody and make them less than human, to put them on full display. And, and as she described, uh, just a line that stuck out to me, it, its its purpose was to erase you. And so as you think about what's the deal with the cross, well, the cross was a way both politically, socially, militarily, in any way to thoroughly decimate anybody who would, like, dare to threaten their control on the world, dare to threaten any kind of vulnerability that Rome might have over the world, it was designed to erase people. And it was super effective. She brings out that, you know, there was thousands, of course, thousands of people who were crucified and crucified before Jesus and even a- and after Jesus, but we don't know their names because it did its job. It so thoroughly destroyed a person and everything about a person that it that it erased them, and then it would put them on full display to just let anyone know, don't even dare to think that. You have to stay in your place. And then Jesus comes along, which gets us into this last quadrant. You might have guessed Jesus, of course, is this articulation of this this alternative to what we so often see, which is somebody who exercised high authority, but also was exposed to high vulnerability. I mean, Jesus, you could see this, and he demonstrated throughout the Gospels, full of authority, full of clarity, full of purpose, acts and power. But he, over and over again, he refused to use it to increase his fame, to lower his vulnerability, to increase his privilege. I mean, why would we trust in Jesus more than anybody else? Because he uses power the way we're all desperate for power to be used. Not for himself, not for his own benefit, not to extract out of us and others the very things that will allow, that that will increase our suffering and decrease his. We see over and over, how does he use his power? He uses his power for the sake of the poor. What does he do with his power often? He often activates and challenges the comfortable. And he stands against and calls out the tyrants. Of all the other tools of death and destruction and subjugation used by tyrants over the years, what Jesus and 
and Colossians talks about this, what Jesus did is instead of him becoming a spectacle, what he does is he puts all those tools and power of death and destruction, the tools of tyrants, the tools of sin, and he puts them on full display. That he breaks those bondages of fear and anger and hatred and shame in the human story, and he doesn't break us. And so what Jesus did is he finally, he took this game that we so often feel stuck in playing, and he broke the tired game, he upended the rules, and he stripped away the power and, of violence and death that held over us. And if you just think about it, there was a moment where they talk about, our, we're not our hearts burning. And, and I, I wish I could tell, I wish I could go into more, but there are many of these. We could, we could talk if you like. But there are many of these. I think we know at the fundamental level, this is the leadership that we want. This is the leadership that we hope for and are so disappointed in, in our boardrooms and our, heading our companies and our schools and our government. We long for people to exercise power for the sake of the poor, to protect, to create safety, to bring about flourishing for the betterment of the city, not just for the rich and powerful. We long for this. In fact, we, we actually assume it usually in, our, in the best. There was, a, there was someone I heard recently, um, a scholar who's done a, a number of research that brought up the idea that of uh, humility being a virtue, which he said, and I hadn't heard this rec until recently, that virtue was virtually unheard of in the Greek and Roman world. It wasn't, a, a vir it's not a virtue. It's like, dude, you don't do that. That's just gross. What you might do is you might get down and you might kind of lower yourself before a god or before the king that's above you. But what you don't do is you don't lower yourself for people that are lower than you or on your level. Dude, that's just dumb. It's kind of gross and it looks weak. But then suddenly, and it, started, it starts with the, what happened uh, with the introduction of the first Christians, is suddenly this idea begins to come around that actually, no, you know what is, is actually the greatest, highest virtue? Is when you have someone with power who lowers themselves and starts to serve others. Starts to give away instead of protect and build. I think they, as they listen, I think part, uh, very part of what when we hear about their hearts burning, it had to do with this very sense that is now in business books, is now in a million leadership books, that servant leadership is actually a thing now. <laughs> that we know that that is what is needed. And I wonder if that's something of what the hearts were burning, even though it was counterintuitive and they didn't, they didn't quite get it or want to get it, they had to know there was something that's actually true. That's actually true to life. Well, as we kind of, I want to zoom into a final moment that as there, because there was a final choice and that final choice was one of trust. You know, that you could imagine, you know, they got over kind of being called fools. They got over, you know, this interesting conversation, this person who was nice and listened to them, maybe shared some things. And yet, um, it, it's a very demonstration of what we were just talking about. Jesus doesn't force himself on that. He actually goes to move on, and he, he gives them the power, the authority to say, do you want more? And what's amazing about them, which I recognize that I often don't do, is that they actually said, yeah, come in. And it's, it's where I want to end today and what I want to invite us into thinking about. That, that, listen, will we, let will we let Jesus hear our raw emotions? I hope. Will we let him challenge our thinking? Perhaps that's something that we need to uh, grow in this year. 
But the question always is, and the thing that actually is the catalyst that actually changes things, is that they invite him into their home. To come into that place of vulnerability, to come into that place where you see the good, you see the bad. To come into that place of intimacy that happens, especially in the ancient Near East around a meal, to offer hospitality was, you just don't throw that out to anybody. But the, when you do that, it is like, that is, that is, there's almost nothing more intimate than sharing a meal together. It's almost like a covenant kind of happens. As though here's this guy, and they say, come in, and they think, oh, we're going to show hospitality. There's something here that we need to get a hold of that we're willing to open up and expose ourselves to, not just put at a, at a distance. It's like, that was really interesting. But to expose ourselves to and to invite him to come in and to go more, and then what they find out is that Jesus the one they're going to show hospitality to, Jesus actually wants to host them. That he actually wants to come into that place. Think about that. This is the God of the universe, the Messiah that just beat sin and death, like did what nobody thought, and he wants to hang out with these dudes in their crappy apartment somewhere. (laughs) But that's what he wants to do with us. And isn't that not the thing, the very thing that keeps us from actually experiencing God is that we just don't think that God wants to come into that place of our lives. And then it's in that moment that he breaks bread and then they suddenly get it. Whether they were, whether it just, it came home or whether it was directly a reference to the communion table or not, probably all of it, they realized like here's the, the very one that was broken for us. And I think what Jesus probably does in that moment is he says, listen, I want you to give me your broken, confused life. The thing that is, confu- that is, you just can't get your head around that you feel like you are powerless before. And what I want you to do is I want you to bring that to this table, put it on the table. I'm going to take it and I'm going to give you my broken body that is going to break, that is going to fix the, what is broken in your life. And so that's what I would ask you tonight as you come to the table. Because this movement of Jesus doesn't happen just because there are smart people cool people, faithful people that are out there somewhere. It happened because all of a sudden people who thought God wanted nothing to do with them actually started to realize that there here is one who has the, both the authority, the credibility, and also the power to do something about the very thing that breaks my life at the core of who I am. And then what we saw that happen is that people started to encounter that. They got up and they realized the worst thing that Rome could possibly do, nothing. And so you started to see people who had no business having influence at all, who began to go out and challenge the very fabric of society and the, the norms that ran Rome. I mean, it's, a, it's pretty incredible. But it comes because they experienced a God who is willing to enter into the very most intimate parts of their lives and ask them, will you give me this thing that feels so broken, feels so disqualifying, feels so shaming, feels so impossible, feels so confusing? If you do that, I will give you my, I will give you my body and I will bring life into that thing that is causing you death, not out there intellectually, but right now. And so I just, I want to, uh, in a moment, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to give us a moment. And, and what I want to invite you to do here as we come to the table in a few minutes is 
to think about what is it that thing that you carried in today? That thing that bothers you? That thing that um, maybe you even wanted to come to church to escape thinking about? Um, and I'd like you to think about what that feeling is that's attached to it. And then as we come up to the table, I want to invite you to think about your, com- your act of vulnerability is to come and just say, Jesus, I'm going to put this thing that feels impossible, and I'm going to give it to you, and I'm going to take your body that was broken for me that you, so that you might be able to speak resurrection into my life, into my heart, into my mind, and into my action. Reor- reorient me that I might go into the world not as a victim, but as one empowered with the good news. So Holy Spirit, we pause. Lord, at this moment, and we just ask, oh, Lord, I, I've said a lot of words. <laughs> we ask, Spirit, that you, uh, I ask you to speak. <laughs> I ask whatever, um, that you bring to mind whatever mattered for each and every one of my brothers and sisters here. I ask that you bring to mind that very thing that we're carrying um, that feels like a weight, that feels like death, that feels impossible. I ask, Spirit, will you help us to perhaps be courageous um, to feel just for a moment what that is. I ask that you you spring to mind, Lord, not just the one thing that Jesus might want to speak to um, each of us tonight.